Well, hello, everyone. My name is Andrew, and I serve as a pastor here with our faith family. I have the joy of leading us through our study of the scriptures today, so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to grab those wherever you are located and turn them open to Acts chapter 19. Find your way to the passage of scripture that our friend Emily just read for us, as today we are stepping into an action-packed portion of the book of Acts. Uh, last year, we did a study on the book of Ephesians titled Grace Made Visible, and we looked at how the church is a community of people in local contexts that make the grace of God visible to the watching world. And today, we're going to look at a passage that tells us how the church at Ephesus was planted. Now, of all the churches that are represented in the New Testament, the, the church at Ephesus is unique. It's unique in the sense that we are basically tuned in to its entire lifespan as a local church in the world. We learn about its birth here in Acts chapter 19, then, then when you look at the book of Ephesians, you're learning about the life of that church and what they were about and how they were instructed to live for Jesus in their location. And, but then when you get to the book of Revelation, we find a passage that tells us about its apparent death. And in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, listen to what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, kind of on the tail end of its uh, lifespan in this world. Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. <clears throat> in it, Jesus says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. Now, what Jesus is saying there is that he's affirming their commitment to sound doctrine. He loves the fact that this church is committed to gospel authorities like the apostles, Paul and Peter, and, and the writings of the New Testament that they were responsible for giving us. And, and then he goes on, after affirming kind of their commitment to sound doctrine and, and to gospel authorities, he says, I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. He's saying they've committed, they've remained committed to the cause of Christ through thick and thin. And so in that moment of the tail end of the church's journey through this world, of that church's journey through this world, Jesus affirms their, their doctrine, their commitment to the scriptures, and he affirms their devotion, their willingness to endure and to persevere through thick and thin. They were strong in doctrine and devotion, but notice what Jesus says next. In verse 4, Jesus says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. And so what we find here is that it is possible for a person, a people, a church to love the Bible, but not love Jesus. It's possible for a person, a people, a church to be committed to even the cause of Christ and to what they think it means to be the church in a given context and yet not love Jesus. And so Jesus issues a warning here in this passage to the church at Ephesus that's on the tail end of its lifespan in this world. And, and notice what he says in verse 5. He says, remember then how far you have fallen. That is, how far they have fallen from their first love. He says, repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I will remove your influence. I will remove your particular presence in the world unless you repent. And so Jesus issues a sobering warning to the church at Ephesus. And the warning that we find there serves as a perpetual warning 
to every people, every group of people who are following Jesus together. And that warning is that it's not enough for you and I to be committed to the Bible, which we certainly are. And it's not enough for you and I to be committed to one another in the church, which we certainly are. What's of most importance is the delight or the joy and the affections that we find in Jesus and for Jesus. It's it's getting back to the basics of our relationship with Jesus and examining our heart to see, do we love the Savior? Are our affections burning for Jesus? Do we love him? Are we listening to him? You know, becoming a Christian means to be given new affections. That's what it means to experience the new birth and to be made alive in Christ is you are given new love for Jesus, a new love for Jesus' church, and a new love for Jesus' mission. You know, if you've ever met a teenager who has become uh, love-struck with someone, you, you've caught a glimpse of what this dynamic can be like. You, that boy who hasn't showered in two months starts taking showers every day. He starts combing his hair and, and dressing more nice, and he even starts sporting some cologne. He, he doesn't have any money, but he starts mowing his neighbor's lawn, and he even gets a job at, at Baskin-Robbins scooping ice cream or something like that, and because he wants to take his, his, his love interest out on a date, and he wants to pursue the object of his new love. And, well, that's the sort of thing that happens when we meet Jesus, but in a, obviously in a much greater sense. When we meet Jesus, we are given new affections that lead to deep and profound life changes. And what we're talking about in that moment are affections, not necessarily emotions. You know, emotions are... They, they kind of arise on the surface of things. Emotions are fickle. Emotions uh, change constantly. But, but when we speak about affections, we're talking about something much deeper. We're talking about something that operates a little more quietly in our lives, a little more subtly. Affections reside at the core of a person's identity of who we are. And when we become Christians, we are given a new identity. And with that new identity come these new, deep, serious, quiet affections for the person of Jesus. We, we love the Savior. But apparently something has happened to the church at Ephesus where they have fallen out of love with the Savior. They have lost their first love. That, that newfound affection that they had for Jesus when they heard the gospel and believed the gospel is now waning. It is not as strong as it once was. And Jesus is calling them back to that. And he's saying the path returning to our first love is found in the word repentance. Repentance is what reignites our affections for Jesus. Repentance is what tunes us in to the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus is all about. This is why when we talk about repenting or repentance in the life of our church, we always say it is that repentance is not a point in a person's spiritual experience. It's not like a person repents and then moves on with their lives. No, repentance, when you become a Christian, is the posture of your spiritual existence. It's the very way of life you assume following Jesus, which means we repent and we keep repenting. And as we repent and we keep repenting, we realize over and over again how deep our need for Jesus is. 
And we are reminded over and over and over again just how incredible his love for us really is. And so when we understand the love of Jesus, repentance becomes easy. When we understand the love of Jesus, repentance and returning to our first love is the path we want to be on all the days of our lives. Constantly returning to our first love, constantly returning to the newfound affections for Jesus, for Jesus' church, for Jesus' mission that, that were ignited within us when we became believers. So the question I want to ask is, what is the nature of this first love? What, what are some of the elements, the dynamics of this first love that, that repentance leads us back to? And if we look at Acts chapter 19, we're gonna, we will discover kind of the nature of that first love and what it is all about. When you step into Acts chapter 19, uh, this is a moment where Paul is planting the church at Ephesus, which is something he did over about a two-year time frame, a two-year span. And, and as he planted the church, some very exciting things happened. We're told in verse 11 that God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands, wild things, so that even, even face cloths and aprons, clothing that had touched his skin were brought to people who were sick. And, and when they came in contact with that, their illnesses left them or if they were oppressed or demonized by the enemy, those evil spirits would come out of them. This is some incredible, extraordinary, miraculous activity. It's the type of activity that cannot be manufactured. It's the type of activity that can only come according to the sovereign power and the sovereign grace of our God. You know, not too long ago, I was listening to a missionary who I deeply respect. He returned from a trip to a remote village in Asia and and he talked about how once he entered this village and began to share the gospel, miracles started happening. He started experiencing God doing things through him that he has never experienced before. And the sick were being healed, demons were being cast out, and that whole village was coming to faith in Jesus. It, everything was changing. And I was listening to him tell his story. This other man kind of interjected and and jumped into the conversation and he said, hey, look, when I was a kid, my parents were missionaries to that same village. And when we were living in that village, uh, trying to introduce people to Jesus, we didn't see any miracles. We didn't see any conversions. Uh, this type of thing didn't happen. And then he charged my, this other one, this other missionary that I deeply respect, he charged him with lying and fabricating the stories. And he basically said, well, if God did that when you went there, why wouldn't he have done that when we were there? And, and if he didn't do it while we were there, then he must not do it at all. And he was making a grave error in how we understand the, this miraculous activity of God. You see, if God is sovereign and if the scriptures are true, then what that means is that there are times when God performs miracles. There are times when he does extraordinary things in the advancement of the gospel. But we also recognize at the very same time that that our sovereign God, there are times and stretches and seasons when God chooses not to. But if we understand our Bibles and if we understand the sovereign grace of God, then we're going to rest in the fact that God is going to, at, that at times he's going to perform miracles, sometimes he's not. We're going to trust him nonetheless. We, were, we will continue to share the gospel and advance the gospel engage, and engage in the ministry of the word all the while remaining faithful to the one who is forever faithful to his people. And so in that moment, 
So in this moment, God is breaking things out. He's performing extraordinary miracles through his apostle. And the miracles he's performing is very similar to what he did through Jesus. In Luke chapter 8, there's a moment where a woman who has been suffering with a blood disorder for 12 years approached Jesus in a crowd, and, and she reaches out in faith, and she's able to touch just the, the hem of his garment. And as, as she made contact with that material, power left Jesus and went into this woman and, and healed her of her disease. Well, that's the type of thing that's happening here because God is ultimately... He's essentially verifying Paul's role as his apostle. He's verifying Paul's role as as an emissary of the kingdom of God and as an ambassador for King Jesus. And, And over time, the church at Ephesus learned to discern between true representatives of the kingdom of God and true ambassadors of King Jesus and those who were false or those who were liars according to Revelation chapter 5. Now, the reason why I think they were able to learn this lesson and, dis- and to discern this dynamic is because these miracles did not happen in a vacuum. These miracles happened in the context of the ministry of the word. Every time God performs miracles, it is done to support the ministry of the word, the declaration of the gospel, the sharing of our faith in Jesus. And if you look at the passage earlier in verse 10, there's a reference to the ministry of the word that Paul was engaging in in the city. We're, we're told that over the course of two years, every, all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord, that is, they heard the gospel. You drop down to verse 20, and we're told that in this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. So you had wonders, miracles, and word working in tandem, and that's the mark of a true apostle. That's the mark of a true representative of Jesus. We engage in the ministry of the word, and when miracles break out, those miracles support and enhance the testimony of the gospel in those moments. Now, we're told in verse 15 that there was a group of, or 13, that there was a group of itinerant Jewish exorcists who were attracted to the power that was at work in the apostle Paul. And they too wanted the power of Jesus to operate in their lives because they have been uh, exercising evil spirits through whatever magical formulas they've been employing. But now they kind of find a new technique. And, and so they parrot Paul and they begin to say the things that Paul was saying and in order to cast out evil spirits. And when you look at verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 15, it says that the evil spirits answered the sons of Sceva, these, these Jewish itinerant exorcists and and they say i know jesus and i recognize paul but but who are you again now that had to be very embarrassing to them it's like showing up at a party and figuring out then that your name is not on the guest list well these these guys were trying to enlist the name of jesus like paul but the evil spirits did not recognize them because they weren't believers in the name of jesus they just tried to leverage it like a spell, leverage it in a magical kind of way, thinking that just uttering the name of Jesus would give them the power to cast out demons, and it doesn't go well for them. We're told that the man who was demonized, who had an evil spirit, he then gets up and a fight breaks out, and you have this brawl between seven men and one man, and you would think seven on one, the seven would have the advantage, but that's not the case here. We know it's not the case because when all is said and done, this man is running out of the house naked and wounded. Now, if, if you start a fight with your clothes on, 
But when your fight, the fight ends and, and you're naked and wounded, you've lost that fight. And so this guy has just wrecked these seven men and they are fleeing. They are streaking from this scene naked. And, and as a result, everything starts to change. In verse 17, we're told that everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. And here's what that means. It means that they stopped trying to use Jesus that many people stopped trying to use Jesus for their own personal advantage. They stopped trying to access the power of Jesus apart from the person of Jesus. Now, when we talk about the nature of our first love, this is what we're getting after. The nature of the first love that we want to return to is a love that wants Jesus for Jesus. It's a love that wants Jesus for Jesus. There is a difference between wanting the power of Jesus and the person of Jesus. There is a difference between wanting the gifts of Jesus and wanting Jesus himself. And so let me ask you, do you, in this moment, do you find Jesus beautiful or do you simply find him useful? Ask yourself in this moment, if you can have heaven without Jesus, would you still want it? If you could have healing without Jesus, would you still desire it? If you could have his power without his person, would you want it? And if the answer to that question is yes on any level, then repentance is warranted. And we need to repent from wanting Jesus' power more than his person, from wanting heaven without him, and return to our first love that says, no, I want Jesus for Jesus. I want Jesus because he's beautiful and he's good and he's attractive and he's, he's my savior, he's my redeemer. I want him for him. Now, some people, many people in the city wanted Jesus for Jesus, and you look at verse 18, it says, those who had become believers wanting Jesus for Jesus, saying, Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is the Savior, they came confessing and disclosing their evil practices. He's even told that they collected books and they burned them in front of everyone. You see, not only is our first love a love that wants Jesus for Jesus, but our first love is also a love that leads to actual obedience. Actual obedience. Self-initiated obedience. It's much like that scene or that, that common refrain in the movie The Princess Bride where Wesley, who is so love-struck with the beautiful princess, and that every time the princess made a request, Wesley would respond the same way. No matter what the request was, he would respond, as you wish. And what we find when we return to our first love and our affections are reignited for Jesus and we want his person and not just his power, we find ourselves willing to say to Jesus in every moment of every day, as you wish. And our, we, an actual obedience becomes a common refrain in our lives, not theoretical obedience, but actual, practical, evidential obedience. Obedience. First John chapter 5, verse 3 would draw this connection between obedience and love where we're told, for this is what love for God is. If you say you love God, this is what love for God is. It means to keep his commands and his commands are not a burden. They're not a burden because they are being lifted by love. It is not hard to obey someone you love. It is not burdensome, better yet. It is not burdensome to obey someone you love. 
And so when our affections for Christ are burning rightly, we want to do the things that would honor him. We want to say to Jesus in every moment, as you wish, as you wish, as you wish. Perhaps you remember that moment you became a Christian and how quick obedience came. How willing you were to, to cast aside things that, that confused your life before Jesus. How, how quick you were to dispel areas of disobedience that, that, would, that did not honor this newfound love that you have for Jesus after becoming a Christian. You know, when we first become Christians, we're willing to jump over the moon for Jesus. There's an eagerness, there's a willingness, there's an excitement to obey him, and lots of changes happen in those early days after becoming a Christian, but over time, over time, um, it's possible for Christians and for churches to start taking Jesus' love for granted. It's possible to start taking Jesus' love for us and his presence and his grace towards us for granted so that we're not thinking as passionately as we once did about what it looks like actually to obey Jesus and what it looks like actually to honor Jesus on our day-to-day basis. And in those moments, it's not because Jesus' love for us has changed. It's not because his grace has, has misfired in our lives. What is happening in that moment is that our love for him has lessened. And when our love for Jesus lessens, then our obedience to Jesus will become more burdensome, more difficult, and in the worst case scenarios, obedience for Jesus isn't even something we want to do. And in those moments, what we want, what, what needs to happen is repentance. Well, we repent and we return to the love that leads to actual obedience, where we are doing things that correspond with our commitment to Jesus and his calling upon our lives. You see three forms of obedience in this passage. In verse 18, you see a willingness for the people to walk in the light. The language there is to, they started confessing their sinful practices and disclosing. In other words, they were bringing everything out of the closet that, had been, that they've been hiding from everyone in the church or from everyone in the community. They're bringing it all out into the light because they know that life thrives in the light, but it dies in the dark. If there is concealed sin in your life for too long, your love for Jesus will lessen and you will find yourself, you will find yourself with fewer affections for the Savior because you're not stepping out into the light where his love is most, where his love transforms the things about us. And so they're confessing, they're disclosing, they're disclosing, they're not hiding anything. Then you look at verse 19, it even says they took some of the books that were associated with their wicked practices were their magical ways and they brought those books out and they began to burn them and they burned a lot of stuff. We're told that they burned the amount of material that cost up to 50,000 pieces of silver. That amount of money would feed 100 people for 500 days back in the day. And so they're burning books. And what I think's going on here, this form of obedience is that these new disciples who now love Jesus, they, they're putting up some safeguards. They are putting some, ba- some boundaries between them and the things they once did that dishonored Jesus. They were put in, not only were they walking in the light, but they were putting safeguards in their life, safeguards that would force sin to have to jump over to get into our lives again. 
This is much like what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. He's saying take sin seriously. Don't flirt with it. Kill it. Don't fiddle with it. Do away with it forever. This is what they're doing in these initial early days of their relationship with Jesus. Now, one of the things you and I can never do in the life of our church, especially as we are gospel-believing people, is that we can never preach grace too much. You can never preach grace too much. But what can happen over time as we are preaching grace and gospel, grace and gospel, is that over time, we can fall into the delusion of thinking that grace somehow makes sin safe. But grace never makes sin safe. Sin is always harmful. Sin is always enslaving. Sin is always poisonous to the heart and poisonous to our lives. Grace does not make sin safe. We do not sin freely even though we are saved by grace. We sin. There are consequences that come with that. When we're living in sin and we're hiding it and we are not fighting against it, yes, over time our affections for Jesus can wane because we're not considering what he endured for us to show his love to us when he went to the cross. And so what we want to do is we want to allow grace to do what it's designed to do in our lives. And what grace is designed to do is it's designed to awaken our affections for Jesus by making us aware, man, we really need Jesus. And man, Jesus loves me even though these other things were true about me. I don't want those things anymore. I just want to be with Jesus. I want to say as you wish to him every moment of every day. And so I'm going to get wise. I'm going to put some safeguards up in my life. If you struggle with pornography, utilize some resources like Covenant Eyes. Put it on your computer to put a safeguard, a barrier between you and that dynamic. If you're struggling with some particular sin, have conversations with other disciples about safeguards you can put up between you and that sin, safeguards that sin would have to jump over and fight to get to you, don't make it easy for it to do so. And so burn some books. I don't know what books you need to burn in your life right now, but, but consider what safeguards you can put up in your life. But then there's another dynamic of obedience in this passage. You find it when you drop down to verse 21. And we are cued into Paul's resolve <laughs> We're told in verse 20, 21 that Paul resolved by the Spirit and we're told about some of the travel plans he was making that he was going to travel through Macedonia and Achaia, go to Jerusalem. Eventually, eventually he would end up in Rome. Now Rome is where Paul would be killed. And later on after this passage, Paul's going to be warned by a prophetic voice that if he goes to Rome, he's going to die. But at this point, he's resolved by the Spirit to go there and the language here echoes the very language that described Jesus' resolve to go to Jerusalem where he too would die. And what you find here is Paul's willingness to go wherever the Spirit leads. You find here a willingness for Paul to take up his cross daily and to follow Jesus. And when we think about actual obedience, we're, we're talking about submitting to the Spirit, going wherever he says to go, doing whatever he says to do, denying ourselves daily, taking up our crosses, and following Jesus. Actual obedience on a daily basis, saying as you wish to the Savior. The, the nature of our first love is a love that wants Jesus for Jesus, and it is a love that leads to actual obedience 
What actual obedience needs to be present and operative in your life right now? What is the Spirit telling you? What is He convicting you over? What have you been trying to hide? What sin have you not been fighting against by putting in safeguards and accountability structures and those things not... um, and those things to keep you in line with the life that, or in line with the gospel that you are believing. Well, verse 23, you keep reading, we learned that there was a major disturbance about the way. Sometime later, there was uh, a disruption in Ephesus about the way. And the way there is a reference to uh, Jesus' statement when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Christianity in its early days was known as the way, and, and the way was causing problems in Ephesus. And so a mob forms and a riot breaks out because the gospel was affecting too much change in the city. The gospel was changing things that the city didn't want changed. And what you find here is that no area of life is immune to the gospel's influence, that the gospel will penetrate and affect everything it comes in contact with. And so an angry group of people get together and they try some herd immunity, so to speak, to try to uh, immune themselves towards the gospel's influence. They, they didn't want the gospel to change things, and, and so they start to protest. They start to mistreat Christians, and a lot of chaos and, chaos and confusion begins to arise. And, and what's happening in this moment is that they were being confronted with the nature of this first love the nature of our first love. You see, the nature of our first love is a love that saturates all of life. It is a love that does not leave any inch of creation unaffected or untouched. And when the gospel began to change people's lives and the rhythms of their lives begin to change, it started to affect everything in the city and many people didn't like that and the reason that is is because uh, this is a love that saturates all of life. Notice a few of the things that, that are affected. This love saturates our relationship with money. The Christians in Ephesus were no longer spending their money on idols. They weren't buying these, these idols that were carved and crafted by human hands, these non-gods that people were trusting in and worshiping, they were no longer buying those. And so this threatened Demetrius's trade. It threatened the, the craftsman's trade. It threatened so much about the economy of Ephesus. You know, one of the most remarkable things that our first love can do for us is our first love, when we return to it, is it can enable us and energize us to put a dent in the economy of sin where we can put a huge dent in the economy of sin. This is what is happening in Ephesus, and this is what can happen today. Do you know how, to, how we can really be effective in combating human trafficking? How we can affect change on that level? Well, if Christians would rise up and start starving that industry economically, and we put a dent in the economy of sin by saying, look, we're not going to feed ourselves pornography and put money into that because that just goes to, to feed the market that human trafficking is a part of. So how do you combat human trafficking? One of the most ordinary ways you can do so is by refusing in this time of isolation, in this type of quarantine, refusing to gratify your sexual, sexual desires through pornography on the Internet. Returning to our first love means returning to a love that saturates all of life, and it includes our sexuality, our sexual practices. It includes how we engage in uh, 
the exchange of goods and finances. It affects our relationship with money. But then you also see in this text that it's, this love saturates our relationship with culture. The city of Ephesus was, had a long history. The people of the city had shared values, shared values that might be declared in the statement of verse 28 where everyone is crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This shared value they have, this slogan of the city that everybody starts chanting in the riot as the riot is breaking out, they also had a shared history. If you look at verse 35, there's a reference there to something that fell from the sky, most likely a meteor, a meteor of sorts that fell to the sky and, and people gravitated towards it, which is why the cult of Artemis kind of started in Ephesus and they were attributing things to the gods from this and so they had shared values, they sh- had shared history, and now the gospel has come in, and it's challenging all of that. It's challenging their, their story, their narrative, their history, their values. The gospel is challenging all of that. Now, this gives us a moment to think about how the gospel changes and saturates our relationship with culture. No matter what culture it is in the world, we We want to say right now that the gospel does not insist upon cultural conformity, meaning when the gospel crosses cultures and begins to penetrate new people groups who have shared values, shared history, shared culture, all these cultural dynamics, the gospel does not insist that uh, those people groups conform to the cultural expressions of Christianity that are found or common here in Seattle or in the United States. No, the gospel does not insist upon cultural conformity, but it does, cons- it does insist upon cultural compliance. Meaning it insists upon people complying with the kingdom of God. Complying with the ethics of King Jesus. Complying with the fact that Jesus is Lord and no one else is. Complying with the fact that idols are bad and they need to be shunned. Complying with the call for repentance to be exercised and faith in Jesus to be uh, kindled. This cultural compliance with King Jesus is required of every culture on the planet, but that's not the same thing as cultural conformity. One of the mistakes missionaries from our country made in the 19th century is when they would go to a place like Africa and they would try to evangelize people or share the gospel with unreached people groups. They attached too many cultural garments to that practice. And they begin to try, they tried to insist on Africans becoming more American than Christian, and that created some problems. And And as a result, the gospel didn't make much of a dent in those early days. But then came along missionaries like Adoniram Adoniram Judson and Hudson Taylor, and they began to recognize, no, we, we need to just get the gospel there and allow the gospel to bring their culture into compliance with the kingdom of God so that they can express their faith in ways that resonate with their heart language and their customs and their practices. This is why a man named Lamen Sané, who's a, uh, I believe he's a professor at, at Harvard or Yale, and he's, he's a follower of Jesus, and he studies missiology and the movement of the gospel around the world and its impact on culture, and he makes this statement about uh, when the gospel started to really take root in certain tribes in Africa. He says, you know, people, there was a moment where people sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred nor their clamor for an invincible savior. And so they beat their sacred drums for Jesus until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. After that dance, the stars weren't little anymore. Christianity helped Africans, here it is. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. 
And when we say that the, this first love saturates culture, we are saying that this love makes room for every ethnic, ethnic linguistic people group on the planet has a seat in the kingdom of God. They have a place in the kingdom of God. They're, this unity that God's people have in the midst of our cultural diversity is a good thing. And so when we talk about the impact this first love has on culture, we're not talking about cultural conformity. We're talking about cultural compliance. When people groups all over the planet find themselves submitting to King Jesus, loving King Jesus, listening to King Jesus, and then worshiping and serving and honoring him in ways that make sense to their cultural context. This is, this is what we're getting after. But then in this moment, you also find that this love saturating our relationship with religion. You know, the disciples in this moment did not disrespect the religious practices of the city of Ephesus. The city clerk makes that clear in verse 37. He says, look, the, these guys aren't doing, they're not robbing temples and they're, they're not blaspheming our goddess. They're not going after her directly in that way. Instead, what we find is that the disciples just talked about Jesus. They lifted up Jesus and as they talked about Jesus, the differences between the gospel and religion became self-evident. When it comes to making the gospel known in a religious context, and allowing our first love to saturate religious practices, it isn't because we are offensively talking about and talking down other religions in the world. No, it happens when we just talk about Jesus, lift up Jesus, and when we lift up Jesus, the differences between the gospel and religion are self-evident. And so we want to recognize the respect we can show other religions and we can show people of other faiths, but as we're showing that respect, we're still lifting up Jesus. And when they begin to pick up on the difference, they begin to pick up on the differences Jesus' love makes and how incredibly different the gospel is from religion, some of them may get angry. Some of them may fight back. Some of them may protest. But at the same time, some of them may be given new affections. Some of them may receive a new love. Some of them may find themselves repenting and believing the gospel, being transformed by the reality of Jesus. And so as we think about what it means to return to our first love, we, we're talking about putting ourselves on the path of repentance and staying there. And one of the ways we want to repent is we want to repent from limiting Jesus' jurisdiction in our lives or even in the world that we see around us. We want to repent for, of limiting his jurisdiction, recognizing that Jesus has rights to every inch of this world. When Jesus resurrected from the grave and he engaged his disciples before sending them out on the Great Commission, he assured them, look, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. And so this first love is a love that saturates all of life. It saturates our relationship with money, our relationship with culture, our relationship with religion. It drives us into the world around us in ways that, that lift up Jesus. And, and as we lift up Jesus, some people are going to be mad. Other people are going to be transformed. What we do is keep lifting up Jesus. And so let's think about what it means to repent and return to our first love. Let's repent and return to the love that wants Jesus for Jesus. Let's repent and return to the love that leads to actual obedience, actionable obedience. And let's repent and return to the love that saturates all of life, seeing everything through the reality of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. 
And let's be honest about the implications that those realities have on money, on culture, on religion, on our approach to missions in serving Jesus in Seattle and around the world. Back in the day, there was a a wonderful set of movies known as Karate Kid. And I'm talking about the originals back in the 80s, not the not the remakes that are always terrible, but the original Karate Kid movies with Ralph Macchio who played Danny Russo and he had a mentor, Mr. Miyagi, and, and Mr. Miyagi took care of bonsai trees. And in the third part of that trilogy, some jerks took a tree that, Ralph, that Danny Russo was trying to plant to honor Mr. Miyagi and to uh, just esteem him with. And, and so these jerks take this bonsai tree and they rip it apart and they throw it down into uh, the bed of a river and Danny retrieves the tree and he takes it back to Mr. Miyagi and he's feeling terrible because I think this was his last bonsai tree. His, his shop had been robbed earlier and, and he's bringing this bonsai tree to Mr. Miyagi and he's apologetic, he's upset, he's worried that the tree's going to die but Mr. Miyagi assures him. He looks at him and says, hey, the, the tree has strong roots And then Mr. Miyagi took the tree and he bound it and he nurtured it. And before the movie ends, the tree had revived, the tree was restored, the tree came back to life. You know, when we become Christians and we are given new life in Jesus, in that moment, we are given strong roots. And over time, those roots may come under attack. They may come under attack by the world, by the flesh, or by Satan. Our first love may be intruded upon. Our affections may dampen, but they may even be split apart. But I want you to understand that Jesus' love for his people is never lost. That we have strong roots, not in our affections for Jesus, but strong roots in Jesus' affections for us. And when we remember the love of the Savior, repentance becomes easy. Returning to our first love becomes exciting. It becomes desirable. Repentance isn't a scary word for us. It is a posture that we want to embrace, we want to assume, because the love of Jesus makes repentance easy. And so we want to repent and keep repenting. We want to return to our first love over and over and over again, a love that wants Jesus for Jesus, a love that leads to actual obedience, and a love that saturates all of life, affecting how we see every ounce of God's, or every inch of God's creation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to repent and return to our first love? If there are areas of our lives right now or an area of our church right now where we are not loving Jesus for Jesus or we are not actually obeying Jesus or we are not allowing your love to saturate every area of our lives, I pray that you would expose that, that you would bring that out into the light so that we might confess, so that we might repent, that we might return to our first love. God, would you reignite our affections for Jesus? Would you stir our love for the Savior? And remind us that our love for him is rooted in his love for us. We thank you for the strong roots that we have in Christ. And we pray for your grace to abound in our lives, in our church, forever and always. God, we ask and pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.